Hi, this is Disability Saves the World with Fadi Shinuda. I am Fadi Shinuda. This podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world. You'll hear about the research and work of disabled artists, scholars, activists, and our allies. You'll also get some insight into their lives, their favorite non-DS activities, their hobbies, and the adventures they've taken. Most importantly, you'll hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fadi Shinuda, he, him pronouns. I have a PhD in Public Health Sciences. I am a postdoc in London in the UK, and I identify as a fat, disabled cis man of color. If you don't know me, hopefully you'll get to know me a little bit more over the course of the next few episodes. For now, I want to get into today's show. We are joined by Dr. Mary Jean Handy. I call her MJ. She is a postdoctoral fellow at Mount St. Vincent University in Nova Scotia. She's also a brand new mom giving birth to the cutest little thing just seven months ago. I'm so excited to speak with her about her research. Interdependence, mutual aid, solidarity. And life outside of academia. Turns his head and he's like, this lady over here needs some assistance. And ask her how she thinks disability can save the world. Okay, and hi. Hi, MJ. How you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm really excited about being a part of this. I'm I'm really uh, honored to be the first guest on your podcast. You are the first. We are recording on March 21st. I'm currently on day six of isolation after coming home from London. And we're both quarantined. We're in this new reality. And so why not, um, yeah, meet with friends, talk to them, record what they have to say, and share it with the world. Indeed. Um, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. So the first segment is called Inside the Project, the Research, the Work, the Art, Inside, you know, the World, essentially your world as an academic. Um, I kind of want to start off with asking, you know, like, why DS or why MAD studies? Why disability studies? Why MAD studies? Uh, Cool. Yeah, that's a good question. yeah, I actually had the opportunity to think through this a bit when I was a part of the Mobilizing um, Disability Studies Scholarship um, event earlier. I guess it was uh, just after my baby was born, about six months ago. And I was thinking, you know, how did I get into this to begin with? Because I identify as non-disabled. Um, and so I get that question a lot within the field. Like what, you know, because there's obviously more representation from disabled people in the field. Um, but I... Um, grew up with a a mother who had multiple sclerosis um, and she moved into a long-term care home when I was five years old and lived there for 24 years Mm. and my family um, kept very close touch with her and we really spent a lot of time um, in the the nursing home or the long-term care home with her Um, And so disability was just a really foundational part of my life. Um, And then as I got older, uh, I started getting more interested in kind of community organizing. I started getting involved with 
um, you know, environmental organizing, anti-poverty organizing, um, anti-capitalist organizing, and um, I just and I just felt like these um, the organizing work was really not engaging in any meaningful way with this other totally rich world of um, disability and care that I was so immersed in growing up, and you know, I was very you know, grew up seeing a lot of injustices and um, learn, and I started learning a bit about how people were politicizing um, what was happening um, in disabled people's lives and kind of denaturalizing, I guess, if I can use that word, disability. And I was just frustrated that I couldn't talk about that in my organizing spaces. And so um I really just started, I went to grad school, I decided to do a master's degree, and I really just wanted to figure out how I can bring um, disability and political analyses of disability um, into broader community organizing frameworks and social justice movements. And so that's kind of been the driver behind um almost all of the work that I've done since then. So it's been, um, I guess, over 10 years now since I started my master's degree. Yeah. It seems to have come from a very natural, like, need or requirement of yours, right? Like, you needed to yeah. make these connections. You wanted to, you didn't understand why they weren't connected already because they were already so connected in your own personal life. Mm -hmm. um, so in some ways, like, a building of a bridge or making connections or demonstrating yeah. these things are related. Yeah, or just trying to understand how is it that, you know, when you grow up with disability all around you, you know, and then you go into these organizing spaces with people who care about social justice, and they, for some reason, don't see disability anywhere, you know, right. like, I, I just found that I was having conversations where I was like, you know, maybe we should get, you know, um, we should talk about disability in this context. And people would just look at me like I was from outer space, you know, like it was just so hard for people to wrap their heads around it. And I, so I started thinking through, you know, how is it, you know, so many disabled people um, historically have been kind of, you know, in uh, care homes, um, isolated, not able to participate in public life, right? And so it's these political movements in some ways have kind of developed without thinking about these people because they've been, I guess, hidden away um, or or isolated in many right. ways. And so, you know, I'm just trying to make those connections and, and, and demonstrate how valuable um, disability is for these movements and I guess how disability can save the world um, yeah. to tie into <laughs> your, your podcast. <laughs> So I want to talk about the kind of the topic that you're researching, the project, the research that you want to tell us about. Um, is there a particular kind of um, project that you think um, you kind of want to share with the people who are listening? I mean, as most academics, you know, I, I'm coming from a community organizing background, but in, you know, recent years, it's been mostly academic work that I'm doing. Um, now that I'm done my graduate studies, I've moved into a plethora of different research projects, um, but they're all kind of tied together. So maybe I'll try to talk about the cluster and, and you know, the research problems that I'm kind of engaging with and try to, you know, keep it focused. Um, I, I focus mostly on disability care work. Um, and so for me, that was something that... Um, 
you know, it, it, it allowed me to make these tangible connections between um, uh, disabled people's lives and and social justice movements, right? How are we caring for each other? Why are some things called disability care and why are other things um, just called, you know, helping each other out or harm mm -hmm. reduction or support? You know, why, how is it that, you know, the type of care that, you know, quote unquote, disabled people get is somehow made not politicized in the same way um, as the kind of harm reduction or um, community support networks um, that activists are so familiar with, why why those types of care are not connected, right? And so for me, um, politicizing care work and broadening our understanding of care work across a variety of different sectors and communities has been a, a really important kind of thread that ties my different research projects together. So in my, my PhD research, um, I was really looking at um, disability care activists in Toronto um, and their thoughts on why disability care is important, how they got interested in disability care. And I started um, really connecting with people that were not part of the disability community per se, but were engaged with harm reduction work, anti-gentrification work, um, sex workers who are fighting for rights and protections, um, people who were, um, you know, living in poverty in Toronto and, and the kind of support networks that they develop with each other. And, you know, listening to their understandings of what disability was and how they saw themselves as connected with other disability activism or not connected with it and why. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a, you know... Um, I, I learned a lot in that project um, and, you know, moving out of my PhD research, I'm, I'm now involved with a number of projects that look at different kinds of more formalized, not necessarily community based, but more formal, formalized care work, um, home care work, um, care work in uh, long term care homes. And uh, I have a new project that I'm just starting um, on migrant care workers um, in in home care sectors that are um, not um, kind of hidden away, right? So that it's kind of this care work that's hidden away, but also linked into kind of migrant justice organizing and, um, you know, anti-capitalist organizing, actually. So trying to kind of weave a disability studies analysis into the kind of migrant justice and anti-capitalist organizing that um, is really ramping up right now um, and kind of demonstrating the connections or the solidarities that can be formed there is something that I'm, um, this is a new project I'm working on, I guess. Right, yeah. So, I mean, it seems like, you know, you're working on lots of different things, but they all are centered around kind of care and mm -hmm. creating different definitions or different understandings of care, especially when we like consider how disability might like change those definitions, right? Or change those change our understanding of what care is. I'm wondering if there's a particular theory that you're using or a particular a theoretical approach or a set of theorists that you kind of engage with that helps you rethink these ideas. Right, yeah, so um, some of the theory that I um, engage with is really informed by um, 
disability scholars who have been engaged with uh, community organizing and um, uh, have an anti-capitalist, feminist, anti-racist approach. So I draw a lot um, on the work of Rachel Gorman, um, who is a disability studies scholar and activist in Toronto, um, Nirmala Aravelas, um, who's based um, in Alabama, who does um, some uh, uh, work around race and disability and education. Um, and I also do, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm developing a cluster of um, friends in, in disability studies that are kind of interested in looking at disability in similar ways. So um, mostly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Marxist. I draw on Marxist theory. Um, and so trying to really think about how disability and care are um, formed through capitalism, right? right? What is disability and care under capitalism? And what does resistance, what does disability and care have to do with resistance to capitalism? Is a, is, and theorizing around that is, is what kind of, um, kind of underpins a lot of my work, I guess. Right. And, and I can't help but think that that's like an especially important conversation to have given our current climate when we are being asked to care for each other in ways that we've never been asked for before on a global level mm -hmm. right um not just care but to take care to separate to isolate to quarantine um and of course you know also to to think about things like age and disability and vulnerability and like bodies of difference as something that we need to consider more than ever before. And so I'm wondering in this kind of current climate, how you're thinking about your research, you know, how um, how has this moment in time, um, yeah, been something that you've been reflecting on? Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, it's very troubling times, um, but I'm also been reflecting a lot on how the research and the organizing that I've been involved with over the years has really helped me think through and prepare for something like this. I'm not going to say that I'm prepared for what's happening right now. I don't think anyone or very few people, I think, could say that they saw this kind of scale of, um, you know, um, global response to a pandemic like that this would be coming you know in in the near future i i don't think i saw i didn't see this coming let's be um, clear listeners you don't have a bunker full of like food <laughs> so you're yeah. not prepared yeah i mean but i mean at the same time um you know, one of the things that I've studied a lot and talked a lot in my organizing work is the very um, rapid and uh, troubling erosion of our um, health infrastructure and, and the um, kind of frameworks or um, mechanisms that we have to actually support each other in society right now. And so this is, you know, what I, you know, talk a lot about in my work is how care has become our responsibility and has become has become more of a priority for for people because their quality of life has declined right there's more people living in precarity there's more people who are fleeing um national crises and disasters there's more you know there's all uh, people who are 
um, undocumented, who don't have um, legal status, who are criminalized. I mean, all of these people um, have to develop their own support networks to survive, right? And and the work that they do to survive and to get other people to care about them enough to try to help them requires a lot of political organizing, right? And so um, the number of people who kind of make up, um, you know, who are struggling in that way is is increasing rapidly. And this the infrastructure that we have to support them is so, so depleted, you know? Um, and so, you know, it's kind of a perfect storm for something like this. I mean, it's kind of like all the, the tinder is already there. It just needs a spark, right? Like, you know, COVID-19 is the spark, but we already had this depleted infrastructure to deal with most of the population's healthcare properly, right? Um, and so, you know, disability activists um, and people living in poverty and precarious people and, you know, marginalized people have been talking about this for years, and now we can't ignore it anymore, right? We see that this is deadly. It's not that people weren't dying from these conditions before, but it's this kind of pandemic that speeds up the rapidity um, or makes rapidly increases the the rate at which people um, are endangered and actually die from from the conditions that they live in. And so we're starting to realize that, you know, despite our you know, glorious neoliberal capitalist epicenter that we live in right now for some people is is actually um, uh, woefully and unprepared to protect people. And it's not just the people who are most vulnerable that are being impacted, right? It's like we we're starting to understand that we actually are interdependent, right? Rich people can't totally insulate themselves from this, right? You know, poor people or people who um, have, you know, non-normative immune systems or who have um, health issues or health complications that are affected by this, right? Everybody is being affected by this in one way or another, whether you um, are, you know, affected by um you know the stock markets being totally in a free fall right now or completely volatile or maybe you're affected because you can't work anymore or you have to take care of somebody that you you would have been able to pay somebody to take care of before you know it's a, it's it's literally affecting everyone and and people are having to change their behavior to protect people in a way that they probably never had to think about before. These are the things that are at our front and center for care workers, care activists, disability justice activists all the time. time. Now all of a sudden everybody needs to think about it, right? And so the wisdom that has been developed in these communities is, is what's I think leading the way right now. Even public policy, you know, our government's um, you know, leading public policy experts are totally stymied. They don't know how people can protect each other. And so it's these kind of grassroots movements that are saying, like, we've been trying to do this for years. Here's some tips. Here's some suggestions. Right. Um, and of course, we both are like we follow lots of people on Twitter and we follow lots of disabled activists and, and scholars on Facebook and we know that they've been sending out messages of like, I've been doing this all my life, right? I've been doing yeah. the work of caring for myself and my community. Um, 
you know, and I've been organizing my care for long periods of time. And, and it's interesting to think of how, like, uh, disabled people are the experts in this current climate. And it's not, and it, yeah, and it's not only, I mean, I guess for me, it's important for me to kind of broaden our understanding of who's disabled. Like, it's not just the people with health issue. There's people who are just marginalized who have to think about these things more than others, right? And I guess one of the things that I have been thinking about a lot lately, too, is just how, I mean, this is a this is a bit of an aside, but I feel like it needs to be said, like, you know, countries that in Canada or in the global West, we are used to criticizing as being inferior and having um, backwards ways of doing things or not having the freedoms that we enjoy, um, like China. I mean, I'm not saying China's perfect, but the way that they are responding to this crisis is, is the way they have responded is superior to the way that we're dealing with it in Canada, right? And so I think that this is also pushing us to kind of decenter our kind of Western, Western centrism and our assumptions that the way that we do things here in the West in the kind of white dominated um, epicenter capitalism is somehow superior because I think we're, we're, we're actually having to take a cue from people that we're used to dismissing and marginalizing and, um, you know, describing as inferior or backwards, right? We're having to take leadership from them now because we're clearly unprepared and we're not, we're not doing a good job of dealing with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, it's so interesting to think of like everything that's happening in Florida right now, right? Like all of these young people, not even if we don't have to go to the States, I was just reading out in Vancouver, right? People see the nice weather and they're going outside and they're, you know, they're, they're enjoying the sun. And it's, and it seems to me like, um, uh, because of like our individualistic understanding in a lot of kind of like Western or global North countries, right? We, we don't see the ramifications, like how I act won't necessarily impact my neighbor, won't necessarily impact my, the community, my parents, whatever it might be, right? We're so independent, so used to being independent that we can't think interdependently, nor, of course, then act interdependently, right? And you're saying in some countries, because interdependence has always been a sort of philosophy, right, um, potentially their response to this is going to be much more successful. Mm-hmm. Or, or they've actually understood that this kind of independence and this kind of hyper-liberalism um, is, is not... Um, uh, it doesn't actually make sense and it's not politically progressive and it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. Right. right. It, and even if we, you know, this is something, our notion of freedom in the West is so individualistic and guess what now, you know, the, the, the fragility of that is being exposed. Right. right. So, I, I guess that's, a, a, you know, another core kind of part of the research that I do is, yeah, challenging this notion of interdependence because or of, of independence, because care work really is about interdependence and emphasizing interdependence and showing how, you know, ev- everything that we do is connected to what other people are doing. Right. Um, and there is no world in which your behavior doesn't in some way impact on on other people around you or the 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 work that you do you know doesn't have a larger impact on society i mean i talk to people um 
who are saying, you know, yeah, I, I've got my groceries for the month and, you know, I'm able to work from home. And so, you know, my life isn't going to change that much. And it's like somehow they haven't really wrapped their heads around the fact that the whole world is changing right now. And having a stock of groceries and working from home isn't going to insulate you from the massive changes that I think are coming right Absolutely. now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think for a lot of us who study kind of the changes after these kind of moments in history, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's like 9-11 or the financial crisis or, you know, this current moment, we know that things rapidly change after these 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 global events, right? Um, whether it's war or, you know, increased financialization or who knows, right? What happens? Or a revolution. Our revolution, our revolution, we can we only can, pray, hope <laughs> and pray. Um, I do want to get to kind of this discussion of like results and outcomes, even though I hate the words both results and outcomes when it comes to qualitative research. But I essentially tell us what you learned in doing this. Like, what did you think was like a really interesting thing that you learned from doing it? Um, well, I mean, my the research that I'm doing with migrant care workers is really just in the beginning stages. So I'll kind of reserve um, that's, you know, remains to be seen. I guess I the only project that I would say is totally wrapped up right now is the is my dissertation research, my Ph.D. research, um, which was on community care work. Um, and I guess some of the things that I think are um the takeaways i guess i would say from that research are um the importance uh, the importance of of really of really broadening the way that we think about disability and the way that we think about care i think both of those kind of conventional ways of understanding disability and care i think are are actually impeding us from really politicizing and and forming solidarity with broader social movements right now um so you know um disability the disability activist community has really emphasized this kind of social model of disability that has kind of moved away from kind of medical definitions of disability or the medicalization of disabled people in their bodies and minds um and kind of trying to place the you know show how the world can be disabling for people um but in the research that I was doing, a lot of the people that I was interviewing and talking about the work that they're doing with and talking disabil about disability with, for them, um, they, they felt that, that, that those definitions of disability were not adequate to describe what they were experiencing. And for them, I think it was really important for them to think about how... Um, gentrification, um, drug use, uh, austerity, um, you know, the war on drugs, all of these things, um, you know, precarious immigration status, all of these things were what were disabling them. Um, and it was having a material impact on their body, right? So their bodies, a lot of people kind of described it as like their bodies being broken down by these political events, right? These things that we think are just, you know, I'm kind of waving my fingers around and like, this is what my supervisor used to do to kind of talk about 
I guess, social forces and social relations that sometimes we don't understand how they affect us in a very like material kind of embodied sort of way. But for the the activists that I... Uh, It cut off just when you were waving your hands. So can you go back? So maybe I'll just jump in for a second. Yes, I can have a whole show just on like academic hand gestures and (laughs) like a way of explaining complex concepts. But like, yes, it's kind of amorphous. What you're describing is kind of amorphous. I think it feels amorphous for people. But for the activists that I interviewed, it was very... um, It was very visceral and very embodied, you know, that they... And for them when they saw a policy change, right, in whether it be some sort of criminalization or whether it be some sort of, um, you know, condo development policy or something, they they immediately anticipated more people becoming disabled, more people becoming sick, and sometimes people dying, right? So for them, that was how they read disability. And I think we still, in the general public, when we think about disabled people, we think about disability, we think of the wheelchair user. We think of, um, you know, people with very visible signs of disability, right? Um, we think about the access symbol, you know, that we see on our, you know, the automatic door openers and stuff like that. But, you know, the people that I'm, the, the people that I was interviewing for them, disability is things like um not having a, an adequate healthcare system, right. not having um, adequate, um, you know, social welfare for people, not having a harm reduction clinic, not having a safe injection site. That was where that was what was disabling them, and that was where they saw disability being developed, and it was being, um, you know, uh, it 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 was changing their bodies, right? It was disabling their bodies, right? And so for them, they really wanted more than I think. In the you know disability activism, a lot of it has been around kind of inclusion into the workforce um, and kind of disability pride um, and kind of helping disabled people participate in public life. But I think you know from this uh, group of activists. For them, it was really about actually fighting poverty and fighting criminalization and fighting um, things that would actually break down their bodies and minds and make it hard for them to survive, right? And and in some ways, it was about also being recognized as disabled people because in a lot of ways, they were marginalized from mainstream disability activism. And so the work that they're doing, the harm reduction work that they're doing, the the lobbying that they do for the government, the demands they make on government, the community supports that they develop, that was their care work too, right? It's not this kind of medicalized care work. It's not hiring an attendant, although sometimes it is. It's really about, that's my baby crying in the background. It's it's really about... um, developing the support that they need to actually survive and be strong enough to fight back as a a collectively. Yeah. So those are very different understandings of disability and care work, but by, by them interpreting care work and disability in those ways, they were able to work in solidarity with a a very wide variety, um, you know, uh, of social justice movements. They were linked into a lot of different um, projects that we don't normally associate with disability, I think, or and, care work. 
it's so nice that you essentially found a group of people, right, who were doing the kind of work that you wanted to see in um, when you, you know, when you decided like you're going to focus on disability in math studies, right, like or you're going to focus on disability studies, like you you found people who were doing that kind of work, which is really great. And then you wrote about it, which is absolutely fantastic. I do want to move on to the, sure. the segment I like to call in the middle, not inside, not outside, somewhere in the middle, because you know me, I love the liminal space. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you some um, questions about, or really one question about, who is your current academic crush? Oh, my current academic crush. I wasn't prepared for that question. <laughs> someone who you love reading, someone who you love seeing posts on Facebook or Twitter, someone who um, whose work you're really excited about. It doesn't even have to be uh, a disability studies scholar, anyone really. Like, I, I, I've always been very excited. I think um, my friend Sona Kazimi-Hill, um, she's doing some really exciting stuff right now, and I've been following her a lot. Um, she's somebody who I think has really, in some ways, worked. Um, we've talked a lot about our research together. She was in my PhD cohort, but I'm really excited about some of the stuff she's doing on war and disablement. Um, and refugees and disablement. Um, and I just think that she's doing a lot to a kind of decenter disability um, and and move it into um, move it out of western the Western world, right? So that's another problem with kind of traditional disability studies and you know mainstream disability activism is it's very western centric, um, very white dominated. Um, and so I think, um, you know, emerging scholars like like Sona are are doing a lot of really important work on showing how um, geopolitics and war um, in countries um, in the Middle East, which is where she focuses, are are creating disabling conditions and why why the disability community needs to um, pay attention to that. Um, and I just, I just feel like I've just learned a lot from her in terms of like thinking about, um, trying to think about how, um, how war and and things like, um, you know, outbreaks and uh, climate change and stuff like that, how those things are affecting people all over the world, and how we can analyze that without assuming that what's happening in Canada or the United States is the main driver of that, right. you know, of what's happening there, right? So I, I guess I just, she's really pushed me to think outside of a Western framework and outside of um, uh, a kind of a kind of a white disability studies, I guess I would say. That's great, yeah. thank you. And of course, Sona um, is at Ohio State University. Right. Um, and so people can check out her work, I'm sure. You can Google her. Can you say her full name again so that people know? Dr. Sona Kazimi Hill. And um, I'll put her full description somewhere in the notes of this podcast. So the next question for In the Middle is, um, what advice do you have for young academics who are listening? We are both considered young academics, but we did finish the hardest, most brutal thing in the world, um, at least in some ways, our PhD research. Um what is something that you would tell folks who are kind of right in the middle of it? 
I guess my I've been reflecting a lot on, you know, why I'm doing disability studies um, and how that's different than community organizing. So I guess I would say, you know, do, you know, pursue the question that that you are passionate about, you know, that you're especially in your Ph.D. research. I mean, you want to do you want to tackle a question that is going to continue to you're going to be asking forever if you don't tackle it. Right. Um, and, you know, something that is you're passionate about, but don't don't make your dissertation the be all end all, because there's a whole world of research and questioning and organizing um, that exists outside of your PhD and your dissertation. Um, so just, I would say, try to get the dissertation done as quickly as you can, um, because it, you know, so many people get bogged down with that project and make, try to make it into something that it, it doesn't need to be. Um, you can, there's all sorts of offshoots from your research that you can pursue in a lot of different ways. And I guess I would also just say, you know, someone told me before I started grad school, and I feel like I've been reflecting on it more lately is, you know, you don't need, you don't need to be an academic or to get a PhD to make a difference or to do what you need to do. Uh, there's lots of tools that you can get in grad school. Um, I think it's important to stay grounded in um, communities outside of uh the university um just to stay connected with like real people's lives because i think sometimes uh the university can be all-consuming and can take you away and, and 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 make you talk and think in ways that are not are making pulling you away from regular people rather than um helping you understand them and um, help them you know so I think it's really important to stay grounded in in what's happening outside of the university too, and and just see the university as a tool rather than um, you know the the be all end all of um, radicalness or social change. Right. Pro progressiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to segment three. We are now fully outside of research and work or the project or whatever you like to call it. And so I would like to ask you some fun questions so people can get to know you a little bit more. Um, do you, can you tell me about the most famous person you've met and what was it like? <laughs> um, so I was thinking about this with my husband. I think, <laughs> I don't often think in terms of like, oh, that was possibly the most famous person I met. But I think one of the more memorable experiences I can think of with a famous person would be with uh, Jack Layton, the late Jack Layton. Okay. Um, yeah, I was, you know, I'm from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and they have a vibrant farmer's market um, every Saturday morning that I used to go to with my friends. And I was lining up for my favorite Saturday morning smoothie. <laughs> And I noticed that Jack Layton was in front of me in the lineup um, with a throng of people around him, you know, wanting to talk to him and get their pictures with him and stuff like that. And of course, he was, you know, campaigning and kissing babies and shaking hands. And I was, you know, decided I just I was just going to mind my own business and I was going to get my smoothie. 
You played it cool. I played it cool. I didn't want to be one of those people that was, you know, clamoring all over him. So then when I got up to get my smoothie, though, I put the lid on the cup that my smoothie was in, but I didn't put oh. the lid on properly. Oh, no. And the smoothie poured all over me and onto the ground. And then Jack Layton, like, turns his head and he's like, this lady over here needs some assistance. <laughs> and he got somebody to run and get napkins and his assistant was like dabbing me off and he I was so embarrassed and <laughs> I was forced to interact with him I felt like it was a great photo opportunity for him he was helping this poor woman who didn't even know how to you know put her smoothie like lid on Anyway, so I ended up talking to him about some of his policies, and I guess I was had that conversation with him anyway, but that was, I guess, one of my more memorable experiences with a famous person. I've known you for, like, seven years. How is it the first time I'm hearing of this story? It's so wonderful. I don't know. Uh, okay, um, most obscure fact you carry around. What is something you carry, is an obscure fact that you carry around that you kind of... Uh, dole out maybe every once in a while in an awkward situation you know i i don't know if it's an obscure fact but i um as you can hear in the background i'm a new mother and i'm breastfeeding or chest feeding i guess i should say um and i have just you know it's a complex thing it's a complex relationship that I'm in with my daughter now and I'm just reading all of this stuff about breastfeeding and chest feeding like it's just I feel like there's all these like weird facts about the way that breastfeeding works that I would have never ever imagined um and so I'm just constantly talking to people about it which is probably weird um but I guess one of the things that I just learned yesterday about breastfeeding um, is like, it's, it really is an interdependent activity. It's exactly. not like you're just letting some baby like suck on your boob. Right. It's like. Well, you experience pain when you don't do it. So like, I mean, the, the reality is you need her as much as she needs yeah, you. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I recently learned, so sometimes I try pumping um milk and I'm like why can't I pump very well and I just learned that it's not actually the sucking that pulls the milk out it's actually um like this subconscious um subconscious thoughts about feeding your baby and loving your baby that cause muscles in your milk duct to push the milk towards the nipple what so the, the the sucking only pulls out what's right behind the nipple. <laughs> so you're essentially saying that you can release the milk whenever you really want to. The milk will start being pushed down when you have, um, you know, loving thoughts about your baby or whatever. So when you're pumping, you're actually supposed to be imagining that you're you're like feeding your baby or that you or thinking about how much you love your baby or looking at a picture of your baby because otherwise you won't be able to get that milk out. I just, I just find that. So, you know, I don't know. These, these little facts are just kind of <laughs> blowing my mind. I'm like, wow, that's all this weird stuff is happening in my body. I have no conscious awareness of it and yet somehow it's working. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm learning a lot about, you know, being in my right brain more as a, as a 
a mother who's, um, you know, trying to do this chest feeding, it's really, um, it's really help. It's really pulling me out of my left brain that I use for research and into this right brain. That's all about these kind of subconscious things that are going on and just kind of giving into them. Right. Anyways. So that's my, I don't know. That's kind of a, a obscure fact. <laughs> no, that's good. Okay. Um, what you're reading now, what are you reading? What am I reading? Okay. This is kind of embarrassing, but I'm actually reading a lot of breastfeeding books and I'm finding them so interesting. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I just, honestly, I just sit, nothing makes me feel better in the evening than to sit down and read about breastfeeding. It's so weird. I would have never thought that I would be interested in this. That's how I learned about this stuff. And I'm just continually amazed by what's going on with my body and like how this stuff works. Yeah. But I'm also just started reading, um, uh, Kianga Yamata Taylor's book, How We Get Free, about the Combahee River um, Collective, which is a kind of radical um, social justice movement led by um, Black women in the States. And so I've always wanted to learn more about it. And yeah, now I'm spending more time at home. People seem to want to give me book subscriptions too. So, or, you know, free online books. So I'm yeah, I've got a long list, but those are the ones that are on my on my uh, phone right now, I guess. So um, I want to ask you about your hobbies and how you got started in them. Do you have any hobbies that you're currently spending a lot of time doing? Well, as a new mom, I don't really have hobbies <laughs> unless you count reading about breastfeeding. Um, <laughs> but I guess I'm, you know um spending a lot of time with my my baby and learning to kind of be in a different kind of world with her I guess playing peekaboo and stuff like that um but I'm looking forward to getting back into exercising like swimming and stuff like that when I can but right now it's all about my baby so all about the baby that's very yeah. cute um, okay, and finally, I want to ask, of course, how do you think disability can save the world? I think that disability uh, teaches us about interdependence, um, mutual aid, uh, and solidarity, and I think I think those things will help us save the world. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you again for coming on the podcast, for being the first guest on Disability Saves the World. Um, it would, of course, be not the same if you weren't the first guest. So I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, thanks for having me, Fady. I, I'm excited to see what happens with the podcast and and um, I know you've got some really wonderful people lined up so I'm sure it's going to be uh, it's going to be wonderful to listen to for everyone thanks all right thank you again to Dr. Mary Jean Handy for coming on the show over the next month or so we'll be joined by various disability and mad study scholars from all across Canada and the world Really looking forward to having them on the show and to discussing with them how they think disability can save the world. This podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Dr. Vaish Nuda. 
If you have any questions or requests, please reach out. It's f.shenuda at gmail.com. And you can always reach me out by going to my website at fadyshenuda.com. Thanks, and see you soon.